The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What determines whether emerging economies will succeed or fail? That's the big question Rushir Sharma sets out to answer in his new book, The Rise and Fall of Nations. The book offers investors 10 metrics to anticipate the fate of an emerging economy. Sharma, who moonlights as the chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, came by the exchange to tick through some of these rules. These are things like demographics. Is the talent pool growing? Sharma points to aging populations and immigration trends as developments to watch in the near future for a country. Leadership. Is the nation ready to back a reformer? Sharma suggests that this metric tends to favor newer leaders, with very few exceptions, since long-term leaders tend to lose their enthusiasm for reform and instead focus on consolidating their power or legacy. Think Turkey. Is inequality threatening growth? Sharma discusses the preponderance of so-called bad billionaires, those who don't create jobs or otherwise generate wealth for others as a harbinger of doom for an economy. One of the most interesting things is what he calls the kiss of debt. Basically, it's the idea that debt rising to unsustainable levels is one of the surest signs of a country's imminent decline. So what does all this mean for markets and the world today? Well, you'll have to listen to my chat with Rashir Sharma here. But spoiler alert, be very worried about China. Uh, Rashir, this is a fascinating book. I, I sort of to sum it up, it's sort of like a how, how to spot whether emerging markets can fail or succeed. Right. And you've got sort of 10 handy criteria for the world to figure this out. Let's, can we tick through them? Yeah, sure. First, like at the outset, let me sort of say this, that growth is extremely difficult to sustain. And I think that's, that's how I sort of both begin and end the book. Uh, in fact, if I can jump right to the, the last rule, I, I speak about the hype rule, which is that by the time the opinion makers or the global editors of magazines, by the time they recognize a trend that a country is doing really well, it's, it's more likely that the trend has already like, exhausted itself, but for a logical reason, which is that growth is very hard to sustain. Mm. And even the economic miracles in the world, which we define as very rapid growth in some countries, even those have lasted for barely a decade. And I think this is something which we forget because the biggest single mistake that all of us make is one of extrapolation, that a country is doing well for a while, we extrapolate that right out into the future, and right. we lose trend of that. So it's cyclical in a sense. I mean, you know, there's a cycle in which there's a boom and there's a bu- I mean, But how different is that, speaking of e- emerging economies, I mean, isn't that what we see with the United States and a, a developing Yes, with all economies. But my entire point here is that there are 200 economies in the world today. Out of these, only 35 are classified as developed economies. Everyone else is classified as emerging, and most of them, as you know, have been emerging forever, like Brazil, Mexico. These economies sort of never seem to really go anywhere, right. even though they show promise for every other decade. Right. All right. So let's start. We, can start, we don't have to go from one to ten, but we've already got ten. Right. What's uh, when we start with the first? How do you? Well, I think this is the single most important explanation as to why the global economy today is so weak, which is population. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter is why people matter. And they matter even more so today because the world's population growth rate is falling off a cliff, especially the working age population growth rate. A big reason why we had such a golden era of very high growth rates in the post-war period is because the world's population growth rate, the working age population growth rate exploded. There was a big increase in it. But in the last decade, the world's working age population growth rate is falling off a cliff. So demographics is a critical component. A necessary but not a sufficient condition for high economic growth. So if you don't have good demographics, the odds that you can generate high economic growth are virtually close to zero. And is there a policy prescription for this besides telling people to have more children? 
no, I think that the policy prescription, unfortunately, is stuff like immigration, which I, you know, which I say unfortunate given the political climate today, or about increasing the participation of women in the workforce. So Japan. Exactly. Japan is a classic example. You know, and Japan is a very interesting example because here is an economy that's been growing at barely 1% over the last decade, and yet suffers from acute labor shortages. Mm. That just tells you that what's the really big problem with Japan today? That we keep coming up with policy solutions, abenomics, all that. But the fundamental problem in Japan today is that its working age population is shrinking. And when a country's working age population shrinks, it's virtually impossible to grow at any rapid pace. Of course, robots will fix all that in Japan. What's the second notion? About politics. And I think that this is increasingly relevant today. Look at what's happening in Turkey. Look at what's happening in Russia. And the entire point I make in this chapter is the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for that country. And that's what we back up by having a look at the evidence. So both Erdogan and Putin, today who are so cast as these big villains in the global uh, political landscape, both these people were very different when they first came to office. I interacted with some of them when they first came to office, and the people that I met uh, in 2001, 2002 were very different from the Putin, let's say, I met in 2010. So the longer they stay in office, the worse it is for a, a nation is one of the big conclusions of my chapter on politics. And, and, and the policy prescription there would be term limits of some sort, isn't it? Yeah, term limits, but also for us to understand that the longer a leader stays in office, the worse it is, even for the voters. Because what I show in the book is that even if a leader does very well in the first term, and let's say you re-elect that leader for the second term to reward him or her for a good first term, in the second term, the performance is just never as good. So that is something which I see on average out here with political leadership, right. partly because most countries follow a circle of life, which they only carry out economic reform when they are facing a crisis. And when they're in cruise control, everyone gets complacent, and that sows the seeds for the next crisis. And, and you'd just be reforming your own, your own policies. If it kind of doesn't work, right? It's by yeah. definition, in a sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and then what's your third? Yeah, the third one is like something relatively new in our construct, which is that income inequality. Now, this is something which I don't think we would have taken as a factor 10, 15 years ago, because you just thought that income inequality was a, I mean, like a minor problem which would go away with economic growth. It's not happening anymore. This is a very big issue this decade. And so I've tried to develop a system for figuring out in which countries is income inequality going to be a big issue and which country it, it is not such a big issue on a relative basis. But I mean, so it's, big, it's a big issue right now in developed economies more than it is perhaps emerging economies, no. even though the, 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 the gap is so much greater. No, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's entirely correct because the whole chapter is titled Good Billionaires, Bad Billionaires. Right. And I think this is also very relevant in a political week like this. And the point I make here is that because in America, a large amount of billionaires here tend to be good billionaires. And I, def I define these because they are producing wealth in industries such as technology, manufacturing, or industries where productivity is sort of seen to go up. Not just rent-seeking. Exactly, not just rent-seeking uh, and crony capitalists. That someone like Trump, who's a billionaire, is able to make he a run for the office. He says he's a billionaire. Office. Let's just be clear, we don't actually have any competition. <laughs> right, but at least he's able to make a run for the office. Right. In a country like Russia and Mexico, the billionaires are so reviled that the odds that they can make a run for the office is very low. And mm. that's what that system of mind tracks. In which countries is wealth creation still respected? And which countries is the attitude to, towards wealth creation so hostile that it's almost difficult to carry out any economic reforms because they seem to benefit just a few people? But the, and Okay, so but let's think about the response. If you believe that, that, that income inequality is, creates these problems, what, is it just a t simple measure of taxes? I mean, how do you fix this problem? Well, I think that that's something which I have a very little 
uh, answer for because it's, it's well, thanks. So you pose the problem, but yes. we don't have an answer. No, no but I think that, but I do have sort of, you know, one slightly side takeaway. I do feel that the central bank's policies that they have followed in the post-crisis world, I divide the world in the book in the BC and AC era. BC is before crisis, AC is after crisis. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the central bank's very easy monetary policies across the world led by the United States a turbocharging income inequality. Those who have financial assets have done extremely well. Extremely well. well. It, you know, so the number of billionaires in the world before the financial crisis was barely 1,000. Now it is nearly 2,000. So a terrible time for the global economy in the AC world, but the people who have done really well are at top of the income pie, the good billionaires, and the billionaires in general. But I think that there's a real problem here about the fact that wages barely go up, but you keep pouring easy money, and the people with access to that easy money, the rich, do yeah. very well. The holders of capital. Versus that's right, the holders of capital, yeah. So and, and your fifth Yeah, metric. so I mean, it, like in terms of how, as we go on, the other one that I look at is By the By the way, perils. I'm amazed you can re remember these. I mean, yeah, it's good. Yeah, the other one is like the perils of the state, which is that I basically argue, and I guess this has to do with my origins, which I, I come from India, which I'm very skeptical of the state's ability to do that much, because in countries like India, it is so dysfunctional. But what I show in the book is that state spending and taxes have gone up across the world everywhere. But in which countries have they gone up too much? And which countries are still sort of, uh, is the uh, state not doing enough? You know, it sounds extreme, but yeah. But in countries like Korea, Taiwan, they could do much more to help, you know, like increase the women's participation in the labor force, come over the demographic ch uh, challenges by doing that. But the bigger problem are the France, Italy's of the world. Who have done spending, too much. The state's is, way too much. It's like, too yeah. much. Or in the emerging world, take the case of Brazil. Here is a country with a sort of, you know, with an emerging market, which has sort of has a, Welfare state the size of any big European like country. Yeah. yeah, that's It's right. as bureaucratic as Italy, too, is from what I understand. But it, yeah, it, it is a, it's a classic case of over-status intervention in the, in, the, in the economy, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I think that that's the pillars of the state. Then we move on to the next rule, and that has to do you know, with the entire geography, which is that one thing, you know, and this is partly luck, but partly what you make of your geography, mm -hmm. that countries which tend to be in geographical trade routes in the sweet spots right, of the trade routes, right. they tend to do very well. This is one reason that despite the terrible politics in Vietnam, which we have discussed in the past, why Vietnam has shown some resilience. It just happens to be in the right trade routes and countries like Japan, et cetera, very happy to set up manufacturing plants out there. So you have countries like Vietnam or Sri Lanka or even like a case of a Dubai as to why it's done so well because it's in a sort of region uh, where sort of it's the one uh, sort of oasis in terms of how, like how it does. And something which I think has benefited America and China over the years of having sort of, you know, like... A, so this isn't just natural resources. Yeah. You're talking about position. Position. Sense, position yeah. and what you make out of it. Right. Or, because countries like Brazil can be sort of in, sort of, uh, in Latin America and it, they're terrible. It's a, it's a very closed economy. So, the, so the, they do nothing to take care of their position as well. Colombia has changed a lot in that regard for the better, which is that it's basically expanding much more its trade agreements and capitalizing on its position in a much better way than it used to. So it's about position and what you do with your entire position. So, so if you keep running down this rule, the next one that I, I come up with basically has to do with inflation. And I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, which is that, again, we, we tend to feel that if inflation's going up, that's a sign of strong demand in a country. And I argue that if you look at the miracle economies from China to Korea to Taiwan, these economies typically did well when inflation was very low. Because why? Because investment was very high. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to my seventh rule, which is investment is key for an economy. That it's uh, investment spending, and I try and identify what's the sweet spot. And I come up with the fact that in an emerging market, an investment 
to GDP ratio in the range of 25 to 35% tends to be the sweet spot. Versus like a 19 or 20% or whatever. You know, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, right. you can make out these are economies which are terribly underinvested. And you're talking about like capital investment, infrastructure, the big stuff. Yeah, and also manufacturing. That still remains the key to growth. That a reason why Thailand, again, shows a lot of resilience despite the terrible political environment is because of what's happening with its manufacturing sector. That Thailand has the second highest share of manufacturing after China in its economy, hmm. you know, which is what keeps Thailand resilient. Something which also keeps an economy like Korea and Taiwan humming. Uh, on the other hand, in the developed world, you have countries like UK. I was there just last week. And there, I think that the economy is too lopsided because manufacturing has totally been hollowed out and it's all dependent so it's, on services. Yeah. And I think that's, that imbalance is something which I think was behind the Brexit vote as well. There are many factors behind that. But that kind of disenchantment which comes when too much wealth is concentrated in just London on the back of services. So Make America Great Again is about bringing manufacturing back in a way. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can argue it's a very, it's a very tough environment for manufacturing uh, across the world because there's so much over, over capacity in China and you're competing with that. But that is something which is key and even more so for an emerging market because typically low-end manufacturing is what creates jobs. Like in India, a real problem today is that you have high economic growth on a relative basis but very little job creation. And part of that really comes from the fact that you have very little manufacturing going on in India. So that's a, another rule that I speak about. Then we move on to currencies, right? right? And, and like this is an entire thing which also there's a lot of misunderstanding about it, which is that I argue in the book that a cheap and stable currency is best for a nation. That's what, again, the China, Korea, Taiwan type of examples showed. On the other hand, many people view currency as a sign of masculinity, of the strength of the nation. That, it's you like know, the stock price so well. for a country in some ways. Yeah, exactly. And I'm saying that's the wrong way of looking at it. Because like in Brazil, Russia, we saw we have an artificially strong currency that really hurts their economic growth. Mm. Similarly, like in the United States, that when the currency gets too strong, it's something which begins to hurt us as well. Yeah. So I think we have to be careful about how you look at currency. It's not really about cheap. It's about the right price. But about so being stable. Cheap and stable is yeah. the best. It's not as if it's in a free fall. Right. And I think that the interesting part of that chapter in the book is I really focus on the fact that how do you make out if a currency is cheap or expensive. Yeah. And unfortunately here I find out that all these economic models really sort of uh, mislead us more than they and tell us. What? So purchasing, pur price, purchase, purchasing, purchasing price, price priority. Exactly. Those PPP what you're talking about, RERs, they often mislead us. Often it's about how a currency feels when you're traveling in that country. You know, it's as basic as that, but often about how much your hotel costs, your Starbucks coffee costs, right. those things are as good an indicator about how an economy is doing as it is about the fact or how competitive it is yeah. compared to how much like all these models are. Then my next rule is my favorite one because I find that in uh, the world of economics, you rarely get 100% results, which there's always probabilities, right? But here is something which I, about the holy grail I've been able to come up with, about how do you predict if a nation's about to run into big trouble? And this chapter is called the kiss of debt. And here we're able to identify specifically at what threshold level it, you know, does a nation get into trouble? And I come up with the thing that it's the pace of increase in debt. That if a country's debt goes up very rapidly over a five-year time horizon, mm -hmm that country always gets into trouble in the next five years. Sounds like you just described China. Exactly. So that's why on the book I'm fairly bearish on China because of this, mainly this one rule, that there is no developing economy in history that has taken on as much debt over a short span of time as China has done in the AC era since 2008. Sure. Right? The numbers are staggering. In fact, this year at the peak in, in the first quarter, China was taking nearly $6 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth. 
That's how extreme it had become. To put this in perspective, at the peak of the US housing bubble in 2008, it was taking $3 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth. So what China is sort of embarking, wow. you know, like, like uh, two times is now, as, as poor, extreme poorly at the allocated peak. as it Absolutely. was. Absolutely. So, you know, like in terms of what's happening in China is out of control. And it's like a ping pong ball bouncing down the stairs, which is that the trend is clearly down in China. But every time they think the economy is slowing down too much for their comfort, they put more stimulus mm -hmm. with greater amount of debt. You get a pop up in China's economic activity and then it slumps again. Yeah. So to me, that for me is my sort of favorite chapter, so to speak, because it's the most rigorous in terms of what the results we get. Because often the other chapters, like to get a 100% result is very rare in the world of economics. But this one, it almost, it always... It, it always does. That, that so I who mean, else is in that? So China, uh, now, not that you need anyone else. I mean, China is so big, it is so important to the world yeah. economy that, that any kind of meltdown of China as a result of debt would be, I don't know if it's catastrophic, but it would be, it would hurt the It's already having world. consequences for the global economy. The yeah. slowdown in China is for me the main reason why the global economy today is still so sluggish is because of what's happening in China. But in the book, I argue there's a threshold level, that if a country's debt as a share of GDP increases by more than 40 percentage points mm -hmm. over a five-year time horizon, that country always gets into trouble. Luckily, today, the only country which violates the threshold in such a violent way is China. Too bad it, you didn't say it was Uruguay or someplace that, <laughs> where that it wouldn't matter, matter you know, to so the you world. Got, you got a big buildup <laughs> in debt in Turkey. You got a big buildup in debt in Thailand, in Brazil. But it's not as extreme to make it a 100 percent probability rule like it is in China. Right. So I think that that's why China is the main concern for me for the global economy. And as I say in the book, that the next global recession, whenever it comes, will bear the label made in China, right. much like everything else. Right. Where are the bright spots? Yeah, so if I sort of apply all these 10 rules and see, uh, since we already discussed the 10th one, which is about the hype. Yeah. If you if apply these 10 rules and see that which nations really look as good, average, and ugly as I do in the concluding chapter, I'd say that the United States and Germany and the developed world still look good. Now, again, no country ranks 10 on 10. And it's partly because in a country like the United States, politics really, for me, doesn't matter that much. If a figure like Trump was rising in some emerging market, there'd be chaos in that country today. Yeah. Look at the amount, you know, what's happening in Turkey with, you know, Erdogan and stuff like that. In this country, I feel it's almost post-democratic, which is that because you have leaders like, uh, and so many institutions in this country. The, the institutions are strong. Are the so checks and balances strong. are there. You do have all that, but you know, one would be crazy to be complacent about those things. Yes, right? complacent, but I'm saying on a relative basis, I'd say, okay, but still, I'd say United States, uh, Germany in the developed world, and in the emerging world, I like South Asia in general, starting from a low base and don't have the debt problems, and have the demographic Pakistan, advantages. Bangladesh. India, obviously, uh, you know, like along with even Pakistan and all, which was sort of, you know, billed as the most dangerous place in the world. I think that look okay, Bangladesh. I think, I think then you look at Southeast Asia. I think Philippines is the biggest turnaround story of this decade. I think Indonesia still, still looks relatively okay. And then the one question people ask me often, that of all these emerging markets, especially in the middle income bracket, which has the best probability of graduating to becoming one of those select developed markets? And my answer is Eastern Europe. If I look at what's happening in Eastern Europe and what they have done, the Poland, the Czech, the Romanias, to me, those countries have the best long-term prospects. Even as years. part of the euro, which is, a, which is not necessarily a currency they control. Yeah, but luckily, they're not part of the euro, uh, right. the fixed exchange rate. They, right, right. They're part of the customs union and not part of the euro, and I think that's the sweet spot to be in. Okay, so these are non-euro to non Eastern European countries, not sort of the Czech Republic, but say someone like a Romania. No, but even Czech yeah. and Poland are part of the European Union, but they don't have the common currency. Right. So they and can, I think that's what really helps them so, to retain the flexibility. So keep the Zlaty, 
and you know and, and stay and be part out of the of customs union. part of the customs union absolutely yeah. so, so i think that that's what they've shown successfully like to do so that's what i like so these are the countries which i say are good on the ugly side i am most concerned about china given the massive debt build up and i still feel a lot of these commodity exporting countries have invested very little and have taken on too much debt over the past decade and they have a long winter ahead for them. So if I, as an investor, then I pull away from this and you are, of course, an investor. Um, I'm long the United States, Germany, um, Eastern Europe and South Asia. Yeah. And I'm a, short the rest. Yeah. I mean, like in a way, that's a very sort of, <laughs> right. you know, easy way of putting it. Um, Except Colombia. And especially if you, if you have a three to five year time horizon, right. because often you get sort of, you know, violent moves which take place in the next quarter or two. But in the book, I emphasize that the practical time horizon for people like us, for most practitioners, politicians, business people, is about five years or so. Yeah. Anything beyond that, I think even the best forecasters tell you is a mugs game. That's for right. a historian, not a strategist. Exactly. And, right. and that's for uh, the academic world, not for practitioners. Exactly. Well, thank you for coming by. I really appreciate it. Sure. Well, there you have it from Rashir Sharma. Ten ways to anticipate whether an emerging economy will rise or fall. Those are kind of applicable, indeed, to developed economies, too. In any event, thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more, go to breakingviews.com. Follow us at breakingviews.com or me at Rob Warren Cox. And we look forward to having you on another episode of The Exchange.